I'm Tom Vanderark, and uh, this is the Getting Smart Podcast. Here, we're joined again today by uh, Dr. Fernanda Rain. Uh, Fernanda, is, uh, if, if you missed our first podcast with her, um, please go back and listen to that. She's the founder of the History CoLab. She's a social entrepreneur, and the reason we're talking to Dr. Rain uh, today is that she is also a Russia scholar and um, Fernanda, welcome back to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you, Tom, for having me back. Well, it's a sober day and, and topic to uh, to be speaking with you, but um, what's what's happening in Ukraine and why, why does it hit home for you? Uh, I mean, by the time anyone listens to this, the images and stories will have evolved from where they are today, right? I mean, what I think from a bird's eye level, what we're seeing what's happening in Ukraine is um, sort of the arc of history bending in the wrong direction, if you so will, right? Um, we have uh, uh, a an effort going on by uh, a leader to reverse the, the course of history um, and to slow down a path to modernity, to slow down a path toward democratization, and to reclaim a story and a myth and a role in the world that feels like it was slipping away. Uh, and that is what's happening in the Ukraine. And the, the, that's the driving story. And the rest from that perspective is not even that tragic. It's collateral damage, just like millions and tens of millions of people who died in the Second World War are collateral damage to fighting the Nazis, or millions of people who died in the starvation in Ukraine in the 1930s, um, also collateral damage toward a greater path. Um, from Russia's perspective, that's what's going on. Um, and from our perspective, it's a, um, a throwback into a world that I think we all thought was over. Why Russia? Uh, Why did you decide to to study Russia, how'd you, how'd you learn Russian? Well, uh, this is because I was a student in Germany um, in 1990. That's when I started studying. And I started studying right after the wall had fallen and focused on history because I figured that history was the only subject that was going to help us figure out the path to the future. The wall fell in 89. And the project of the day was spreading democracy, right? The promise of democracy was uh, shining on the horizon as something that seemed now available to everyone. And uh, a mixture of history, political science, and law seemed like a good way to uh, get the craftsmanship, like the tools you need to help spread democracy. And so first, that effort uh, was limited to the new states of Germany, so the eastern part of Germany, where I went with my student friends to do democracy seminars and getting young people to think about pluralism and what does it mean to be a student government uh, representative in a pluralistic society. But then, of course, we got involved with Russia when the Soviet Union fell in 1991. Um, we started doing student seminars in Siberia and in Moscow, working with young people in, uh, in seminars at universities, talking about what does it look like to have a pluralistic democratic society. And when I went, I um, completely fell in love with the country. I fell in love with the uh, with the language, with the expanse of the place, with the mystical nature of this, the, the history. And I decided I was going to learn it. I was going to learn Russian. I was going to learn it perfectly. So I, um, I went to study 
at the State University in Moscow and ended up getting pulled because I out of the class because um, I had a different approach to learning. And the person who was teaching the class said, I think you could study with my husband. He has a weird approach to teaching languages, and I think you'd be perfect with him. And so he taught me Russian in three months from zero to 100 um, with poetry which was really neat. But I did learn Russian very intensively uh, with the goal of learning it so you couldn't tell that I wasn't Russian, which was a fun project in and of itself. Fernanda, um, so how many years did you spend in Russia? So I was there. I lived there for two and a half years um, doing research for my, my PhD. But I traveled back and visited many times before and after that time. So I haven't counted it all together, but I uh, was there, uh, I don't know, probably a total of about three years, but that's the, the sum total of it, but always felt like a part of me stayed there because the, it's a it's an all-consuming uh, cultural uh, experience when you're there. Fernanda, I've, I've, I've only spent days in Russia, not years, but I, I, I the Red Square is such a interesting place that what when, when you think about red square what does it tell you about russia and russian history i'm so glad you asked that because every time i go into the red square my heart stops a little bit because it has everything in it right it's thousands of years of history just spread out in front of you you have the um on the one hand just the kremlin which is this menacing container of imperial aspiration right with bricks and you imagine who made them who 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 put them there back in the 15th century 16th century when they were building it then you look at the cobblestones just the endless number of them that stretch out in front of you, you feel like you see the curvature of the earth on the square it's so big right um and you have the saint basil's cathedral with the whole terror of ivan the terrible uh, encapsulated in it, right? And it's it's the the fight with the Mongolian Empire and um, the, the the absurd beauty and the Disneyland caricature of it. Then the industrial nature of the 19th century Russian economy in the goom in the big department store on the left hand side. You have the the, um, the story of the Second World War. Marshal Zhukov is the the statue that that is in in your back when you walk in. Then on the right, you still have Lenin sitting in his mausoleum with the whole uh, uh, Soviet story in some sort of weird remnant reliquary up against the wall. Um, uh, and all that is, is, is holding this idea of what Russia, um, where it lies between Asia and Europe, where it wants to be a part of a world, uh, you know, a leading power in the world. Um, uh, with a proud story of having fought in many different world wars and many different wars. Um, And that's all in that red square, right? Um, Plus all the parades, plus all the people that are sitting there, you know, always walking around um, communicating with each other. So for me, the red square, if you want to understand Russia, you don't have to go very far. You can just plop right into the red square and just watch and look at people and feel the place and can can soak up a whole lot of what that what that what what the country has in in its past and what the challenges are for where it is in, the, in its modernity right like it's not a very it, it is what it, it hasn't changed a lot in the last 100 years um my last visit there feels vivid now it was in february and it was remarkably cold <laughs> and so i may not have done as much soaking in as 
uh, as I would have liked. Um, what what the hell is Putin thinking? Uh, it, it's hard from this distance and from a Western mindset to see Vladimir Putin as anything but a crazy megalomaniac. But is there some is there some particularly Russian way that he's thinking about this, that his action in Ukraine makes some sense? Well, um, historian that I am, I, I think the answer to that question pulls you back to uh, the 15th century, right? Um, it pulls you into the fall of Byzantium and the, uh, the hope that was connected with that uh, with, and with the Orthodox Church coming out of that in, in Russia, that Moscow would be the third Rome and would take the mantle of being the third Rome. And there are these wonderful texts from 1510, 1515, coming out of cloisters in, 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 uh, in Russia at the time, writing to the Tsar, um, basically encouraging him to fill this role of a divine provenance of, uh, of, of leading the world and, and having a special role in its relationship with God. And um, there's a little bit of that sort of third Rome special divine purpose of Russia that has never quite left the idea of the Russian empire. Um, and there's this beautiful poem uh, from the 19th century um, by Tsuchif, and it basically says, uh, you know, Russia is is um, uh, not a country that you can understand with your mind um, and you can't measure it with the standard yardstick. It has its own standing. You just have to believe in Russia. It's a belief system, right? That's the Chuchev, that's his, his poem. And I think what Putin is thinking when, or what, what he's, what he's, uh, what he's uh, what's going on in his mind is having to save the honor of a Russian of the Russian mission, of the Russian role in the world. So the Russian world, Ruski Mir, which means both Russian peace, peace and world are the same term in Russian, right? Which is the funny sort of joke and irony of history. Um, but the idea of a Russian peace and the Russian world and a Russian claim to how the world functions is something that goes very, very deep. Uh, and, 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 and as Putin, someone who saw the fall of the Soviet Union, um, uh, and saw NATO encroaching upon the borders of Russia, it's really the only logical thing for him to do, right? I mean, it's awful and brutal and against every part of international law that one can possibly imagine. But for him, yeah. it makes total sense, and, right? And perhaps aided by the view that he sees his status and power in the world linked somewhat to oil and gas production and that we may this year begin we may at the be at the beginning of the end of of oil and gas and because so much of his wealth and power right now is connected to that 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 if if we are at the beginning of the end of that that signals a, a shift in power if not a loss in power and that if not now when does that make any sense I mean, I, 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 it didn't even occur to me that he would be making an, a rational economic argument behind it. It makes, I mean, that, that argument makes sense to, to back it up. I think um, beyond that, there is a sense of um, uh, 
disconnect from the idea of international law, right? Because of also a reaction to how the American wars were waged since 1990 um, in the Middle East and just saying like, look, don't, don't come to me with a double standard measuring America by one standard and us by another. Like, forget, if this is the game we're going to play, we can play that game. Um, and then the next logical step is um, we have to protect our interests um, and, uh, and, and seeing that claim for empire is, is one that he is it's a, the, a shortening window, right? Because the generation of people that care about that empire are dying. For me, the alarm bells went off when I was there in October last year and I saw the statue that he put up to the Saint Vladimir, who is the Christianizer of Russia, right? And his namesake and he, this enormous statue right next to the Red Square, who is a shared saint, the same statue or similar statue is in Kiev, right? So you have the same thing in two different cities, but in Russia, the one is bigger and it's right next to the Kremlin and it has Vladimir's name on it. And I looked at the statue and I was like, you might as well put a sign up saying, by the way, we're coming for you. Like it, it literally reads like it. It's this huge bronze sign that is basically a declaration of war on the Ukraine. And, I, and that's what I read it as. Um, and it, it feels for me that that is a, a, uh, a, a combination of sort of religious calling, uh, historical uh, destiny, and possibly economic thinking as well. But realizing also that the generation that cares and that you can sell that to is going to be gone. And the next generation of Russians can't, wasn't going to buy that. Fernanda, you, you talked about the, the sort of global order and the, the tentative rule set that it had applied. I, I wrote recently that we're now officially in the post, uh, post-Cold War era. Um, is that true? Is, is this, at least from a Western view, the, the rule set was just smashed? And he, he may argue that, that we may have broken that rule set, but are we in a post, post-Cold post War era? I 100% think so. And I would agree with Robert Gates, who uh, was the former CIA director and Secretary of Defense, who wrote, uh, I think it was last week, um, that sort of America's 30-year holiday from history is over. We basically, we thought that history was over, um, we deluded ourselves, I think, in thinking that history was over. I've been saying for a couple of years, uh, history is really not over. And we have to understand what history is has in store for us because it's not looking so good if we just ignore it. Um, th- the post-Cold War era where we thought history didn't matter and where all of this wasn't going to make a difference anymore because we'd won. America had won. Like we, we did win, right? In the, in our popular narrative, right? There's certain books that you read when you read them and you're like, oh, come on, please don't write that book. And the Fukuyama book was one and the Huntington book was the other, right? For me, when I read them, when I was like, oh, don't, please don't say this because that's going to do all sorts of bad things for our narrative on how we need to reflect on respect history and deal with it. And Huntington did the same thing right, with the clash of civilizations, also declaring a diff- a new sort of version of history and saying, well, this is what it's going to be like. And all these sort of broad brushstrokes declarations on what history, what history is over and where it's going to be um, are extraordinarily dangerous. And I think the, the post-Cold War era where we can simplify the world with stories like that is over. And we have to embrace a world that is extremely complex, 
with extremely complex national narratives, new players, new power structures, new economic realities, new currencies. This is a new world that we thought we could ignore. And uh, I don't think so much that it is entirely new in how it presents itself, but it's new that we have to face it. Fernanda, um, you, you spent, I don't know, all, more than 20 years um, in, in various different ways trying to build democracy um, in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, I, I wondered, how did you think that was going to play out? How did you, what, what did you hope that, Russia did in response to that? Did did you ever I, mean, I thought I thought Russia could build a Western democracy. I thought Russia could be like Poland or Ukraine. I really did. Um, and I thought that if we just um, supported the spirit of um, uh, sort of global humanistic thinking and of liberalism and of pluralistic discourse and of um, incredible openness, which is in Russia. It is there. They're incredible entrepreneurs and, and creative thinkers and democratically involved and engaged and committed human beings in Russia. And I thought they'd win. Um, and I thought we could help them win by uh, supporting a kind of culture like that. Um, the, the, the key factor that people pushed back on and where I was told that I was naive is that the government never really fully believed in an independent civil society. I said, well, then we have to strengthen civil society so that it can crush the government. And they're like, oh, that's not going to work. The government is going to crush civil society no matter what it does. What do you say? Exposed. I think had we done more, could we have done more? I don't know. Um, uh, fact of the matter is that it is a, a, a tragically decimated civil society now where it's going to take a very long time for that to be rebuilt. Everyone's leaving, right? Anyone who can leave, who has a, uh, a strong opinion against the government is trying to get out. Your earlier comment about about Putin scares me because he has to win. And it's hard for me to understand today how he can declare some form of victory and save face and honor the history that he so cherishes. Um, I guess that probably has you worried too. Very. Very. Um, because it's, I mean, as a historian and as a German, right, you know what happens when people with megalomaniacal grand historical narratives that they're trying to create start losing. They just get more dangerous, a caged tiger, a caged lion, anyone who's fenced in the corner. Um, they rarely are the ones who then seek compromise, right? It just gets worse. So yeah, yeah, no, it's it's not a not a good um, not a, a particularly optimistic set of scenarios that we have in front of us. I I do. Um, I guess I just want to express uh, gratitude for the way that surrounding countries, particularly in Poland, uh, but also Hungary, and and in fact. Uh, 
Germany, as far away as France and Spain are welcoming um, Ukrainians has been heartwarming to see. Um, it, this one way or another is going to change the complexion of, uh, of, of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, for generations to come, won't it? A hundred percent. And I mean, I think it's it's complicated in many different ways. On the one hand, of course, it's it's marvelous that Germans can organize 380,000 beds for refugees to stay in within two weeks. Right. Um, and that you have uh, the Polish school system absorbing as many children from Ukraine as are in the entire school system of Los Angeles within two weeks. Right. I mean, these are sort of numbers that that are humbling. Right. It's an enormous number of of people and young people, um, people of all ages, traumatized, being welcomed. I, most of my friends in Germany have someone living in their house or living sort of it, it's 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 right. Very, very close um, that it's also uh it, a sort of sad story that it's this much easier if everyone looks the same um, after the Syrian refugee crisis and that there are a lot of racist undertones in the reporting on this here and in Europe that people sort of um, smile and say, oh my gosh, thank God it's so easy, right? They look like us, they act like us, it's perfect, it's so easy. Like um, migration, it's nice when it's easy, but really um, it's not uh, to be celebrated only when it's easy um, and we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook in just making it easy if people look the same. So I think that's just sort of the only sort of sigh that I would add to the the, the happy story of integration is that it is, um, it's, it's definitely made easier by the fact that um, people are welcoming people that look like them. Fernanda, um, thank you for that background. It's... Um... I always appreciate how you can bring history and context to things that are happening in our world. Um, this and a number of other factors have led me in the last few weeks to to believe that we're living in a in a different world, a world that works different than than we thought it did a few weeks ago, and that requires a different kind of education than we've been offering young people. Maybe you could highlight some of the, the things that this crisis spotlights um, about what, what, have we, what have we missed or what have we ignored in our conversation about education, particularly in, in America? Um, well, <laughs> I, I think there are different levels to this, right? I mean, one of them is... Um, that we have been focused on uh, producing an output in a school system that is very defined and has nothing to do with global citizenship, right? It's can you function in a local national economy? Can you get... And what and that in and of itself was hard enough to define, right? What does it mean to have 21st century skills and... That even as a horizon is one that is still a horizon, right? Because we're still stuck in old forms of assessment and schools that are producing kids that can do standardized tests. So standardized tests in ELA and math and some STEM, that's one thing. Adding the competency-based 21st century skills dimension to it has been added on. 
But to think that one of those competencies is being globally savvy and connected and understanding the world and understanding other languages and understanding where countries are and what um, what the world looks like, um, that's not been part of that mix, right? The increasing global complexity has not been reflected in more time on global affairs and global learning. It's just been reflected in actually less time on social studies and history, less time on foreign language instruction, less funding for area studies and graduate college and, and graduate school education in these areas. So um, sort of while the world has been developing this way, we've been focused on metrics that are entirely national and entirely focused on the needs of our economy here without thinking about a whole dimension that people have been talking about, but it just didn't make the mainstream. Like World Savvy is an organization that's been in the United States working on global competencies for a long time, right? I mean, they, they exist. The Asia Society has had an education program focused on international affairs for a long time. I mean, there are places that have done this, but they're small, right, compared to the enormity of the challenge of transitioning our young people into a world that is volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, and hyperconnected, right, as the military puts it. Um, so that, I think, is one of the... Um, one of the challenges and the other is that we sort of have taken a holiday as the United States from engaging internationally with other democracies and other countries that are dealing with similar issues, right? There is a burgeoning field of how do we teach for a global and complicated democracy uh, world, a, a complicated um, sort of international environment um, in, in Europe, right? Where you have... Uh, networks of civics and history teachers working together to think about how do we deal with post-conflict societies? How do we deal with creating a democracy between people that used to be at war? How do we deal with multiple perspectives on one historical question? There's a whole you know, universe in Europe talking about this stuff and in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world. There's also a universe at the international level that America self-selected out of. UNICEF, UNESCO, there's a massive amount of research and fantastic support resources on how do you educate young people for peace, peace education, right? Fantastic frameworks, beautiful documents, assessment frameworks, pedagogical tools, project-based learning models, all this exists. But And some of it is even developed by people here in the U.S., but it's not in any way, shape, or form, part of our conversation on innovation in education. You go to conferences far more often than I do, but you know how seldom those things are on the agenda when we're talking about innovation in, in education. What does it mean to be a global citizen? What does it mean to educate young people for peace? How do we need to change our narratives to prepare young people to design international security systems that actually will work in the new world order, right? Like that's that hasn't been part of anyone's conversation. We haven't we haven't trained teachers. Don't know how to talk about this. Um, there's not enough money on the college and graduate level for people to be studying this stuff. I mean, it's just been a a dwindling field at a time when we need that knowledge so much. Fernanda, I was thinking about uh, being at South by Southwest last week, and none of the topics that we've corresponded about in the last week or two were on the agenda the, on the power of myth, on the problem with borders, on uh, the, the, the dangers of messianic leadership, um, about 
teaching peace. None of those things are on the conference agenda. I feel like we've we've largely extracted those from the school agenda in America. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, and I think that is a uh, a, a big um, opportunity. Let's put it that way for us to shift gears, um, but it's going to take all hands on deck, right? It's going to take a lot of, 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 of rethinking. And the answer is not to sort of haul out the big fat history textbooks on global, uh, global history or world history and to say, okay, now this is what we're going to read because we need a new lens. We need questions that we can have in our mind as we're approaching these histories. Um, just like you said, around myths, we love myths. All our, our whole history education uh, uh, system is built on the idea that we need national myths for nation states to have a ground to stand on, right? If I want to have Germany as a unified nation or France or the United States, I need myths about why we are a nation that belongs together. So I'm going to create a history profession that's going to tell these stories. This is good old 19th century history, right? Ranke, all these like lovely people that made a profession in history of weaving national stories. So we weave national stories. That's what historians are really good at. Um, and some of them are incredibly, you know, fact-based and factual. And some of them are very cherry-picking and selective because myths um, that we just like any marketing department, there's some myths that work and some myths that don't really work. And so you figure out, well, what's a story that's going to sell? And then you find a story that sells people buy the story, right? It's, 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 it's a marketing business history in some ways, these national myths. And this has been going on for a very long time. And we, we love our myths. Um, we, we, we hate it when someone challenges them, just like we've seen in the last two years, right, in the U.S. Don't challenge my myth. Manifest destiny. And if the American Revolution is the greatest thing that ever happened of freedom, equality, and justice for all, don't challenge my myth. That's my myth. I feel safe in my myth. I love my myth. And you're like, yeah, but your myth has some problems. Well, I don't care if it has problems. I don't, people hate having their myths challenged. And it takes these cataclysmic events for us to say, uh, whoa, man, trash the myth, need new story, need new facts, need new strands, because myth is dangerous. Like that myth is dangerous and it hurts people. But we, that's kind of the, the pathetic rhythm of history teaching, right? Like we teach myths until we realize that, oh my God, they're really hurting someone. If we're lucky, the people that are being hurt rise up and say, stop using that myth. It's really pain, a pain in the neck because it hurts me and my people. And then eventually we deconstruct that myth and say, oh, so sorry, let's craft a new myth and a new story in which you're included. But that's a long slog and we're really slow because we embed these things in our education systems with tons of textbooks that are hundreds of thousands of dollars that people spend on them every year, right? The budget on a history textbook to create it is insane and to buy it in a school. And that's 10 year old, 15 year old history that's in there that's built on people that studied history 20 years before that. So we have a 30 year time lag in getting updated history that we need for today into the hands of students. Forget about teacher training, right? Where we don't even have like the percentage of teachers in history today um, that are actually trained in history research and historical thinking and historical writing is, is small, right? Um, because history doesn't really matter. So we just 
the textbooks are fine. Like, this is, I think, a, a, an issue that, that goes deep to the core of, of how we have seen history, um, how we have used history, what we thought it was for. We thought it was there just to protect our little community. And that served us well for 150 years or 200 years, basically. We're done with that. That's not what we need history for. We need history to prepare young people for the future that they're heading into, for a world that is unbelievably complex. And that's a different set of questions and a different set of stories. And it's a different profession of history. Fernanda, I, um, in, in sort of a twisted post the other day, I connected uh, this new post-Cold post War world that we're living in with the rise of AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning is now ubiquitous in in every sector. The rise of synthetic biology, which on the one hand brought us these beautiful mRNA vaccines, uh, but is also allowing us to gene edit in um, scary ways. Um, when I when I add all of these things up, it feels like we're in a new era um, that is extraordinarily complex. Where we have these complex systems interacting with each other in in ways that we that no one understands. Um, I guess number one, it it makes me humble, and number two, um, as you've been describing, it it feels like it calls for a different kind of education, um, one that invites young people into complexity, one that um, with humility says, I don't know, but how might we? Um, maybe you could describe, particularly in, in civics and history, but not limited to those, your, your sense of what education can and should be in this new this brave new world? I think there, um, the, first of all, I, 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 I see the world in a very similar way as being one that is extraordinarily complex with all sorts of wonderful promise, right? I mean, AI and crypto and all, all, all that stuff is, can be extremely exciting. Um, but it's only exciting when there's a human element that goes with it that has an intent to create a world that is better for all. Right. If it's there's a wonderful article in Time um, the, over the weekend um, about the founder of Ethereum, right, the big cryptocurrency, and about his concerns about um, what will happen if we don't balance our passion for these new technologies and these new opportunities, um, not not balance but carry it with a sense of humanity and what we're doing this for, because greed is just something that is extraordinarily dangerous. And greed paired with these technologies can be can create a completely dystopian future, which is not something we want. So, But to create an education system that is sort of a protection mechanism against dystopia, right? That's, I mean, in the end, what this is, how do we create an education mechanism or an education system that prepares young people to uh, craft a, uh, a society and a way of being with one another that allows us to live in peace and for all to thrive and for the planet to survive and not be 
a, a game in which only a few people win. That requires uh, focusing on these, um, I think it's on these uh, values, I think the core values of what does it mean? How do we show up for one another? What are the values that drive us that we want to protect that are absolutely rock solid for any concept of what a, a community is, whether it's a tiny indigenous community or a huge local community about fairness, about inclusion, about justice, about fairness. Uh, all these different uh, values that are core um, and educating to understand that they are, how important they are and how fragile they are and how we need to protect them. Um, the skills and competences, like these frameworks all exist, right? Of how we need to be educating for the future. We just don't pay attention to them enough, right? Whether it's the Council of Europe's butterfly one or the P21 Partnership for 21st Century Skills or the OECD piece of They're fantastic frameworks of what do we need to educate young people for global competency? the skills that we need, the dispositions that we need, the knowledge that we need, the values that we need, all that's been charted and done. We just have to do it and translate it into a, a system that actually cares about the outcome of school as being someone who's ready for the world. How do we say that, a graduate, uh, that the graduation from high school, your high school diploma is not whether you've managed to check boxes on a grid or get brownie points for whatever, a number of different badges only, but are you ready for this world? Do you have what it takes to create um, both a, 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 a well-being for yourself and for people around you immediately, but also contribute to the way the whole planet works? That's the end goal of education. And it, I don't, I mean, it just is a, a matter of, of taking what we already have and actually meaning it and translating that into uh, diplomas that matter. Like the, the, whether it's the Mastery Transcript Consortium version or some other one, the XQ one, they're, they're close, right? But making that real, saying this is what we mean. We don't mean SAT scores. We mean global citizen ready. Right. Um, uh, thinking about with 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 much more seriousness about what does it mean to have a culturally inclusive, um, diverse uh, uh, culture of of uh, of a civic conversation. Right. That we have we've never figured out how do we do sort of nation state civic gung-ho rah-rah we're going to be american or let's be proud to be german or let's we're also excited about civics and our civic democratic context um that with the global context right we, we still see these wherever we are in a national context and that's something we have to break down right that the whole idea of civics as just a national enterprise died on february 22nd it's not a national enterprise. It's an international enterprise where we need all hands on deck to think about globalizing that and integrating it. So it's, it's really going to be, I think, shifting priorities to delivering what a lot of fantastic educators and thinkers um, have been putting together, but where our systems are not aligned to shift that fast, right? We're like, we have this Titanic that's geared toward producing certain outcomes, and we have to sort of try to nimbly shift that to say, you know, we're not steering toward those waters. We're not going toward the, the calm, you know, super calm waters. We're heading toward very turbulent waters and we're going to need a new boat. Um, it's hard, hard to do while you're in the boat, but that we have no option but to do that. 
I love uh, I love that global citizen ready. Um, I I appreciate that this is an international enterprise, um, Fernanda. I'm just I was reminded uh, you reminded me that we're we're probably 26 months into this new era for this species where we have global contagion, where disease, war, economic shocks, media. Um, reverberate around the planet almost immediately. Um, like it or not, we are now a global species and we need an education system that that uh, acknowledges that, that prepares students for local citizenship as well as, as global citizenship. And that takes us out. I mean, what I, I saw at some of the conferences that I've been to and that I'm going to is that occasionally we bring in international perspectives, rarely, yeah. right? But usually it's from sort of the developing world, in quotation marks, right? Um, with sort of, you know, girls' education in the Middle East or girls' education somewhere. How are we empowering? It's still very old school like mindset thinking. It's like, oh my gosh, the opportunity of opening the the privilege of learning to those who are not schooled. Um, uh, that's not the conversation, right? That's that's not what we, we should be talking about. It's much more about what is our, um, our global endeavor so that our young people are growing up together and understanding each other. How do our kids understand how kids in India are learning or in Russia are learning or in China are learning because it's their world. It's their project. It's a shared project they have of fixing this system that has been broken for so long and, and, and leading it into a, an era where they do see themselves as interconnected. They are going to live in a world that is even more interconnected than the one we are in today. So we have to prepare them for that, not for the one we're coming from, where, you know, our little comfortable world of thinking America is the only world we need to care about. We have to shift gears very rapidly so that they can um, also have enough time to think of solutions, right? It takes time to redesign a new system for international security. That's not going to be done in a day. It's going to take 25, 30 years. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's going to take time. And these kids that are right now 18, 20, they're the ones designing that system. When they're 40, 50, and their Rolodex is big enough and they have enough power to get something done, but they're, they have 30 years between now and then to get ready for actually making a change happen. But that change and understanding what world they're in, that starts right now, right? And that, so. Just, um, Fernando, where can teachers and school leaders find out more if they want to pursue this kind of education? Well, I think there are uh, fantastic resources that are at the on foreign affairs and generally at the Council on Foreign Relations and the Asia Society, Asia Society on their websites. Um, there are uh, There's a new game that the Council on Foreign Relations actually just released two weeks ago on uh, national security crises, and including refugee crises. So uh, unfortunately presc- prescient, but it's a, it's a brilliant game um, that is very interactive and that one can use to get young people thinking about the complexity of international security questions. Um, World Savvy has a fantastic set of resources on 
um, thinking about global uh, global citizenship and um, global civic readiness. Um, uh, Reimagining migration has fantastic resources on re re. Um, the, reframing the whole story of migration. Migration isn't something that happened in the 1920s when people came over to the U.S. on boats, came to Ellis Island. Migration is the world we're in. It's a world that's constantly on the move. And that's the world we're preparing our kids for. Phenomenal resources um, uh, that they have of all different kinds, including films and um, lesson plans and ways for teachers to to engage with a new way of looking at the world. So, I mean, I think there there's a lot more that we could do, and we need new um, sort of frameworks and alignment at the national level to say, "Hey, the time we have to spend on this topic isn't enough. It's not enough, and we can't." So, and we can't pull out English language learners and children with disabilities out of social studies and history, which is what currently happens. So if you're an English language learner or someone with a disability, history and social studies is what you miss. That's crazy. We're building a world in which then people don't feel like they belong or that they have a role to play. Of course, they have a role to play. So we need to rethink how much we teach these topics, um, what resources we put into it. Uh, uh, moving away again from a pure textbook focused uh, learning uh, framework, museums, local museums, almost every city in America has a museum that in some way deals with global issues and global history. Those curators are sitting there waiting for teachers to come and say, talk to me about India, talk to me about Russia. There's someone there who knows stuff. Right. Um, so, so you and me, we both love place-based learning, right? Find places in your place that allow you to connect this conversation on global issues to wherever you are in America. It doesn't matter whether you're in Kansas City or Philadelphia or New York City or San Diego. There, you have a link to global um, global issues, and there are there are great project based learning modules. Um, that High Tech High has developed, that Big Picture Learning has developed, that PBL Works has developed on how do you engage with with sort of the world and create connections to a sense of global citizenship. Um, so much more needs to be done in pulling that together. But there are uh, many resources that teachers can 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 draw on uh, right now while we get people organized to to um, uh, make that more accessible in new ways. People should also check out The History Collab, um, a great uh, resource that uh, Fernanda's put together. Um, she also leads The Learning Collaborative. That's thelearningcollab.org. That's a project we worked on together uh, that started in Kansas City. Um, Fernanda, we, we really appreciate your sense of history, the context that you provided and the inspiration for a new way to prepare young people for, uh, for global citizenship. Thanks for being with us today. Tom, thank you so much. I think we can't give up our hope that there is a version of the future in which the world is at peace, but education has an important role to play in getting us there. So thank you for the conversation and for dreaming that future alongside us. Thanks to producer Mason Pasha and the whole Getting Smart team for making this possible. See you next week. In the meantime, keep learning, keep leading for equity.
Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 